a circus. And I don't even know if there's a circus around anymore. Come to think of it, is there a circus around? Is there, is, is there still a circus? Okay. Is there a shrine or circus? The guys in the little cars. Okay. Well, one of the coolest parts of the circus for me when I was a kid was when the animal trainer put his head in the lion's mouth. Now, I don't know what that says about me, but when I heard that there was going to be a man put his head in the mouth of a lion, I thought, I got to see that. You know, when you're a kid, there's lots of things that you're curious about. And we lived on the edge of town. You know, we didn't have electronics. We didn't have a lot of things that kids have today. Our world was really simple. We made it a lot of things with our hands. We, we took, uh, we used to go and steal pieces of wood from construction sites to make tree houses. Uh, it, was a, it was a different world. But I remember the idea, because I saw on, on, on uh, TV lions like attacking people. And so the idea that someone would risk their life by putting their head in the lion's mouth introduced me to the concept of risk and reward. Okay? Now follow with me here. I've already lost some of you. I can tell. <laughs> uh, you don't even relate to the circus thing. You think people that go to circuses are cruel kind of people. Sorry about that. It was just my generation. Uh, animal trainers have this whole thing. Uh, for it to be dramatic and for it to be attractive to people and interesting, they've got to push the envelope. And so putting your, your head in the mouth of a lion that might eat you you know, attack you, it's a, it's a risky thing, but a lot of people will pay to see that, believe it or not. Not just that, but, you know, kind of those sort of tricks and stunts. And I want to take you into a, a risk and reward question, a risk and reward subject, and I title this talk, Questioning Jesus. So we're going to look at a story where some people questioned Jesus. And the thing about questioning Jesus is, it is a risk and reward deal. There's high risk, and, but there's high reward. And I want you to look at this story with me. It's, it's in the, what, what some people call the last days of Jesus. It's the last week of Jesus' life. He engaged uh, in a number of dialogues and situations that were really, really powerful. Now, his whole life was powerful, but this, this was uh, heightened, heightened kind of a situation. So and if you have a Bible with you, look in uh, Luke chapter 20. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there are paperback Bibles under the chair seats in front of you. And we're going to be reading from page 730 if you look at these paperback Bibles. Page 730. So I'm going to start reading in verse 1. It says, One day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel... The chief priests and teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you're doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? Because he had been, he'd come in the temple, if you hadn't read before this, and he turned over tables, and he, you know, he just challenged the way things were going in the temple, which was the center of Jewish worship. And he said, this is a mess. This is like wrong. And Jesus didn't have any official standing. He wasn't a trained rabbi. He didn't have any credentials. He was from a bad part of the country, kind of disreputable family. He had some, you know, suspect 
kind of things about his life. And so when he came in and started really overturning the apple cart, so to speak, they wanted to know, you know, what's the deal with this? Why do you think you can do this? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? So he asked them an authority question. They discuss, so, so they stop and they go, hold on, hold that thought. They go off to the side and they, all the religious leaders, this is like all the most important people in the religious world in Israel got together and had a little conference about this question that Jesus posed to them. They posed the question to Jesus. This is what rabbis often did, by the way, is when they were asked questions, they would ask a question in return. And it, was, it wasn't like a game. It was a way of drawing people out to think through the answer. And so you would be asked a question, you would answer that question with another question, and then oftentimes another question would be posed to you, but the answer would be in the question, but it would also seek more information. So it was an unusual kind of dialogue. Today we call it the Socratic method. So they answered, excuse me, they discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they came back to Jesus and they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. So I want to talk today about the whole idea of, of, of questioning God, and of, in particular, questioning Jesus. Because that's a kind of cheeky thing to do. Some people would say, who are they to question Jesus? I mean, nobody's supposed to do that, Right? Nobody's supposed to challenge Jesus. Is it okay to do that? Now, sometimes people will go, well, hold on. You know, I've, I've read the Bible. I've read parts of it. And people ask Jesus all kinds of questions. And sometimes they're very pointed questions. And then if you know the Bible a little better, you start thinking, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of places in the Bible where God really in fact, challenges us to bring our questions about him to him. Not to just stuff them down, but to raise those questions. Raise them to him. And just like the bumper sticker says, right? Have you ever seen the bumper sticker? Black and white bumper sticker? I mean, white background, black. Well, some, I guess there's different ways it's, it's designed. Question authority. How many of you have seen the bumper sticker? Okay. It used to be all over the place. It's not quite so hot anymore. I guess just because everybody questions authority now. Nobody needs to be reminded to do it anymore. <laughs> you know, it's not a provocative thought anymore. Everybody just questions authority. There isn't any authority we don't question. Except sometimes people are a little uncomfortable with questioning God, questioning Jesus. And so the Bible frequently instructs us to bring, again, our questions about God to God. Not to ignore them, not to dismiss them, but to honestly raise them. And so here's the, here's the thing. This is my point I want you to take away. Questioning Jesus, which is another way of saying getting real. Questioning Jesus carries risks and rewards. And we saw in this story the risks and the rewards. And, and I, I think it's important for us to, to grapple with this kind of question because 
This is a game changer when you get this. The rewards of doing this on a regular basis, you know, make a, make a dramatic difference in your life. In fact, the kind of problems that we, when we look in the, among people of faith today, and we see the problems that they're struggling with, a lot of them can be directly attributed to the fact that they don't do this, that they don't question Jesus, that they don't bring their questions about God to God. But it's important to recognize that though God wants us to be real and to be authentic, but he gets the final word on what being real and what being authentic is. Okay, so track with me here. God gets the final word on what it means to be real and authentic. And you can see in the way that he engaged these men, he was willing to be questioned. But there was two things that they did wrong. Two ways they missed it. Two ways that, that, that just didn't make this situation, which could have been a real life changer for them, just go sideways. Because when, when, when we question God... We have to be concerned about our attitude and our approach. And you can see in these, this group of, of men, religious leaders, their attitude wasn't great, and their approach was clearly wrong. I want to show you how it works. Because a bad attitude and a bad approach won't get you what you're seeking. And, and, and God's waiting for us to bring to him our questions. He's waiting for us to bring to him our struggles. What we're really facing and wrestling with in life, he really wants us to voice those things to him and to other people, believe it or not. But he wants us to do it in a way that, that is constructive, in a way that gets the results that we're really looking for. So let's look at the attitude first. They had a real simple question for Jesus, right? I mean, they, they kind of said it, and rephrased it just in case, you know, Jesus, you don't get what we're asking. So what did they say? They said, uh, tell us what authority you're, uh, excuse me, tell us by what authority you're doing these things. Who gave you this authority? Now, something can be said in different ways depending on the tone or the inflection. And you can create a completely different impact, Right? So they could have said to Jesus, who gave you this authority? They're seeking information, right? Who gave you this authority? Or they could say, who gave you this authority? I mean, there's other ways you could say that, right? And, and, and one of them is like, they've already made up their minds, and this question isn't really a question seeking information. It's really a put-down. And I think the way Jesus responded, he heard in their question, and he saw at this point, they were really looking for information. They had their minds made up, and their attitude, because a lot of times our attitude does reflect what's going on in our heart, doesn't it? So we can approach Jesus with any question, but we need to seek as best we can to approach him with some humility. Now, a lot of times the questions that we're coming to him with mean we, we're in the middle of some difficult circumstances and so our attitude isn't always the best. Anybody ever felt that before? You know, 
And sometimes when our attitude isn't the best, we think, well, I can't approach God like that. You can. You can approach God with a bad attitude. But you've got to be willing, not just to be commended, but to be corrected. Because the truth is, if you don't get the bad attitude up and out, it's just going to poison you. And so God's willing to listen to you. Honest to goodness, I'm not going to go through... The, the Bible about this, and, and if you want to talk to me afterwards, it's, 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 it's just an unquestioned truth in the Bible that God gives us a zillion encouragements to be real to Him, to, to, to bring the stuff that we're struggling with up and out. And it isn't always pretty when it comes up and out. But we have to find a way to, to be real, but to be respectful towards God and to be willing to say, God, this is in my heart. I don't know if it's good or not. And I need to know if my question and my attitude need any checking. And that's the thing that's it's hard to find that balance. And we won't resolve these things unless we strike that balance. And Jesus is always understanding of people's bad attitudes up to a point. And you can see here, he was really willing to field a really important question. And he, and he responded to their question, and he saw what was in their heart. They exposed it. We'll look at that in a second. Because here's the thing. This is the risk that you take when you bring your questions to the Lord. Your heart will be searched. If you bring genuine questions to the Lord, hard questions, God's going to search your heart. And you're going to be known. And whatever's in your heart is going to come out if you really are asking the question genuinely. All that's attached to the question is going to be pulled to the surface. It's going to be examined. It's going to be examined with love. <laughs> But it's going to be examined from God's perspective, which is the best perspective. And we're going to be able to see, if we go through this process, what's really going on inside us. But it's not, it's not pleasant. It's just not. It's not. And these men, obviously, it wasn't that exciting to them. So a lot of times the mistake we can make, and I think it's a mistake that people throughout history have made, but it's a mistake that we've institutionalized now is, we have a, a real drive to be what people call authentic today. How many of you ever heard that word used, authentic, right? But what we've mistakenly done is we've thought that however we feel is authentic and it's right. It may be authentic in the sense that it's going on inside me genuinely. It's, it's my personal experience. God gets to decide, doesn't he? Doesn't he get to decide what's authentic? What's, what lines up with his design? Because there's lots of people who believe throughout history that really heinous things that they've done were right. And they were completely authentic about that perspective. Yet we look back now with hindsight and go, wow, we don't want to call that authentic if we're using the word authentic, but they would. I have to give you an illustration. 
there's, there's, you know, 100 people in this room, and there's 100 different illustrations, and that's not even scratching the surface of how many times in our world we've made the mistake of thinking, because I have a feeling it must be right. Because I have a perspective, it must be right. And I think that's something you just have to check. You have to be willing to check. But in the throes of it, in the moment, that isn't how you feel, is it? And I think these men, like everybody does, the idea of questioning authority is an important thing that we need to consider. Because authority is, is just a part of life. We're going to encounter authority in every dimension of our life. And there's four ways that you can respond to it. You can have a blind trust in authority, which is a big mistake. Or you can have a kind of passive mistrust in authority. Because you're going to either trust authority or you're going to mistrust it. And you can mistrust it in a sort of passive, friendly way that, that's socially acceptable. Or you can have aggressive mistrust. I mean, that, this, these guys had aggressive mistrust. Who gave you this authority? Right? The bumper sticker is, 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 can be an appropriate posture to have towards authority. We need to question authority. doesn't mean we can't follow authority, but we do need to question authority because the, we live in a fallen world. And everybody that says, when you hear this line, just trust me. I have your best interest at heart. You need to refer to that bumper sticker right there and go, oh, okay, do you have my best interest at heart? Because that's what trust implies, is that you're thinking about me and not just about yourself. But we live in a fallen world, a world that's flawed, and everybody is affected to the same degree. And only the people who can prove in a demonstrable way that they have your best interest at heart are people you should trust. Now, some people just are so desperate to be loved, to, you know, to make life work, that they'll trust anybody. And it's, that's a hard life to choose. Blind trust is not a wise course of action for life. Neither is passive mistrust, because we need to trust people. And passive mistrust is just, I'm just going to be a nice, friendly person, but I'm not trusting you. You need to trust people. It's a, it, you need to live, to thrive. Then the third thing is, is this aggressive mistrust, which we talked about here. Then there's perceptive trust. The fact that God entertains questions means he wants you to express perceptive trust. Meaning, this person allows me to ask them questions and to verify whether I should trust them or not. That's a, that's a good reason why you should consider trusting them if they're willing to be scrutinized. And they're willing to entertain your questions and your pushback. That kind of trust is really important in life, but it's not an easy place to arrive at. And so, and these men had an appropriate role to play in challenging people who were claiming, like Jesus, to have a unique kind of authority. Jesus was claiming to have a kind of authority that they should respect, that these, these men who were the religious leaders of a whole community, Jesus was asking them to respect him. And they had a role because they represented a lot of people and because they were discerning and they were wise and they had some experience. And Jesus even commended them. He said, they're sitting in the seat of Moses. 
and listen to them. But what he said was, just don't live like them because they're hypocrites. They said one thing and did something else. That's a sign. I mean, everybody's hypocritical on some level. But the people who you can trust are the people who say, I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm trying to work on it and hold me accountable. These men that were challenging Jesus were not like that. So they were in this, it was a, a place of being in a bind. So the religious leaders were unsettled because Jesus was challenging their authority. So they didn't want to listen to him. They had a reason, they had a personal reason to go, we don't like this guy. They had their mind made up. They weren't seeking any real answers when they asked him that question. They were, as you'll see around this last week, they were just trying to trip him up. They were trying to trick him. They were trying to find a way to undermine him. And this is, to be honest, this is what all of us do. God's authority challenges us. God's authority makes us uncomfortable, just like it made them uncomfortable. But he's not making us uncomfortable because he's mean. He's making us uncomfortable because he's perfect and we're not. And so we encounter this friction. And it's not a comfortable thing to experience. And these men experienced it. And they're an example. It was okay for them to ask him these questions. But it was their attitude that was the problem. Their attitude revealed something going on in their heart. So they knew enough about who gave Jesus the authority to do what he was doing at this point. This is three years in, three plus years into Jesus's life, uh, his public life. He's done miracles. He's challenged hypocrisy and injustice. He's raised people from the dead. He's cast out demons. He's loved people. He's taught things that are wiser than anybody's ever taught in history. And at this point, they didn't need more information. They had all that they need, but they needed, but they weren't willing to live up to the light that they had. And so Jesus pressed them a little bit. He saw they're obstinate, and he just, I can't help you. He wouldn't answer them. And I want to talk about that silence in a second, but the other approach I mean, the other part of this attitude and approach is the approach is the religious leaders wrestle with their questions, but they didn't wrestle honestly. Did you see what they did? They asked Jesus a question. Jesus answered them. Then they went away and they talked amongst themselves. They just went into a little echo chamber. They just talked to the people that agreed with them already. All of them were already of the same mind. They didn't want to submit to Jesus. Do you think they were going to get any other answer than what they got? Now, if you want to know how God wants us to approach asking him questions, imagine a triangle, just in your mind, a triangle. God is at one point of the triangle. We're at another point. And a community of wisdom is at the other point. And we're supposed to engage God if, if, if I'm at one point here and the community of wisdom's here and God's up here, the way I bring my questions to God is I bring them to him and I, li- and I bring them to my community of wisdom. Those men thought they had so much wisdom, they didn't, listen to, they didn't need to listen to anybody that disagreed with them, that had another point of view about Jesus than what they had. And so they didn't gain the wisdom 
that all these other people could have offered him about who Jesus was. They had their minds made up. And so you can see, this is a, this is a historical pattern, uh, approach, that people who've worked out really difficult kinks in their faith utilize this process. They, they talk to other people who were at least as wise, if not wiser than them, and they talked to God, and they did it openly. These men, they only talked among themselves, and they wrestled with their questions in this echo chamber. And so they only got silence. Jesus replied, they replied, and he just said, I don't have anything else to tell you. Now, here's the thing about God's silence. How many of you ever prayed and you heard back nothing? Really, I want you to raise your hand. Okay. Let's just be honest. Isn't that frustrating? Like, God will speak to me about things that I don't want him to speak to me about, and then when I want him to speak to me, he doesn't speak to me? What's the deal with that? You, you, I can feel a little compassion on these, these men here because I've been in their place, and, and you have. But here's, let me, let me help you grapple in, in one way with silence, the silence of God. The silence of God offers us something. It offers us an opportunity for awareness. God... When we speak to him, and he doesn't speak back immediately, he gives us a chance to develop awareness. And you think, well, that's what I'm asking him for. We think we are. If God replies with silence, he's giving you an opportunity for self-reflection, to go a little deeper than up to the point you thought you were willing to go. Do you understand what I mean when I'm saying this? That, that silence gives you a chance to say, God, is there anything you're trying to show me about what's inside me? Because, see, that's what God was doing with these religious leaders. He spoke to them. He asked them to reflect on what was in their heart. Because when we're in an uncomfortable position, we tend to look at God and go, that's where the problem is. You're not... You're not fixing this thing. You need to fix it. You, you need to explain it to me. And sometimes we, it, it would help, we think, if we understood all the moving parts. And I'll say something to you in a second that probably won't be satisfying. But the most important thing that we need almost always is more self-knowledge and more self-awareness. And we don't get it when we're talking. We get it in silence. And I, please remember that. Please write this down somewhere. <laughs> write it in your Bible somewhere. Write it, in fact, go to the, take one of these Bibles home with you and in the front page put, don't be afraid of silence. And when, when you're experiencing silence, it's not a bad thing. It's an opportunity. Because sometimes after that silence, you know what God's giving you silence for, besides just awareness? Is he says, you know enough to trust me and obey me. 
And the silence is that opportunity for us to say, okay. Like at the end of the story of Job, that's what happened to him. The silence of God on the subject was Job's invitation from God to trust him. Because there's a point where we can't understand why God's doing certain things. And I don't like that answer, but it's, it, is, it is the answer consistently given in the Bible to many situations. There's a point where you go, are you going to trust him or not? Now, these men were given that kind of an answer by Jesus. It doesn't sound like that, but what he was, Jesus was saying to them was, I've showed you enough for you to trust me. Now, will you do it? He gave them an opportunity. And if they would have answered honestly, instead of hiding what was going on in their hearts, see, he asked them a question, he gave them a chance with his silence to become self-aware. Because here's what they were wrestling with. <laughs> the two options that they had were, were both uncomfortable. And this is, this is the place we get when we're in a situation where we... We want to know something from God. And he wants us to, to come to terms with that too. We are usually caught between two options that we don't like. Those men said, we don't like John the Baptist because he challenged us. He challenged our corruption and our hypocrisy. He challenged the whole system that, that we were sitting on the top of. He was calling us to repent. Us! Us! We're the teachers. This crazy guy that lived in the desert and wore weird clothes and ate locusts and honey. Locusts and honey? Really? You know, the original naturalist? Who does he think he is? Well, he was from God. And it was clear he's from God. And even people who were uneducated were, were moved by John's, the power of John's teaching. And then he was killed because he rebuked the wrong person. They didn't like him. That was a problem. That was their problem. That wasn't Jesus' problem. Then the other option was, well, if we say we believe him, then the people. And we need the support of the people. You know, we're their leaders. We don't, we don't want to get on their wrong side, so we're willing to be on God's wrong side so we can do what we want. So we can have life work out the way we want. Because when we come down to these big questions, they're always questions about authority. Who are we going to tell us? Who are we going to let tell us how to live? It's always about that. Who do we let tell us how the world works and how we fit into it? And we're all struggling, just like those men were, with coming to terms with the fact that God gets the final say on how the world's supposed to work and our place in it and other people's place in it, that he gets to explain that. And where I feel authentically out of step with that, the problem is with me. And what I think is authenticity 
is just my own stubbornness. It's just my own, if you want to put another term to it, it's my own rebelliousness. And a lot of times I didn't choose it. It was somehow shaped in me. I was born with it. The world around me has, has, has influenced me to come to that point where what I think is authentic and good inside me is, is contradicting God's good design and good will. And so this authority thing is a big deal. And we run into it over and over and over. And Jesus is about to do for them the final thing that will prove what he's doing is something from God. Is he's going to die on the cross. There's nothing more he could show us or them that he had this, their best interest in heart and our best interest in heart than that. But the way he's lived, he's, his, has been a reflection of that. But and this is the hard part for us to see in this is we, we can become so self-convinced of what's authentically in our hearts that, that it's authentic meaning it's right that we can be completely out of step with what's good. And I, I, I just suggest to you to think in your life of all the times where you found yourself behaving in a way that later on you went, oh, how on earth could I have ever said that or done that? And if you recall, in the moment, you were so full of such righteous indignation at how right you were and how it was so wrong for someone to contradict you and challenge you and push you. And the people weren't pushing you with any meanness. But you couldn't see how selfish you were being. That's just our, that's our condition. And that's what was happening here. And so this silence that he gives them, he gives us. Now, here's a, here's a cool thing. If you, the reward for questioning Jesus, the, the reward for bringing your real stuff up and out to him and to other people, because authenticity needs to include a social dimension, being authentic with God and being authentic with people. That, remember that little triangle I've tried to frame in your mind. The coolest thing about questioning Jesus is the first reward you get is you meet Jesus. There's nothing better than that. They met Jesus. They met God in the flesh. So it's cool to question him. Secondly, their heart was searched, which is a reward. I said it was a risk. It is a risk. But to have your heart searched is a good thing. Have you ever had a question about your health? And, you know, you exhausted Google. You, you spelled the word every way you could think of. You, you, you went to, you know, mayo.com and mommy.com and, you know, all the weird sites on the dark web that you could find to, to figure out what was wrong with you. And then you decided, okay, maybe I'll go to my doctor. I'll ask him, maybe, you know, these guys are all, they're all, you know, they're all in it for the money. Uh, I'm going to go ask my doctor. The doctor says, you know what? You just got a little infection. And here's how we're going to treat it. And all of a sudden, 
whoa, wow. But he did do a little exam. You know, drew some blood uh, for guys, maybe put you in some awkward positions. Uh, it wasn't fun, but you walked out of there and you, you, you followed the treatment and you feel better and you go, wow. All that agony and whew, this is a lot better than I thought it was going to be. When God searches our hearts, you know, after it happens, I have all this anxiety moving up to that point. And then when I allow God to search my heart, it's just so much better than I thought. It, it, it is. But it, it never changes that I don't like it and moving into it. I don't, I, I, as I think about it, as I think about it being authentic with God and with other people, and really bearing the deep stuff inside me, I just don't want to do it. Don't you feel like that? You're looking at me. I'm not sure if you just don't want to say or you don't get it. But you don't. None of us do. So the last thing is you will get the answers you need. You'll get the answers you really need. You might not get the answer you want in the moment. Like I said, the silence of God or God's invitation for you to trust him and obey him and move forward. But you'll get the answers you need. He promises. Those men got the answer they needed. And it wasn't cruel. It wasn't critical. It wasn't mean. It was, it was wise and it was genuine. And, and it was life-changing for them. Now, they could have still come back to Jesus after that. You see that? This wasn't like Jesus just, Jesus said that. And I think he just stood there and waited. Because they could have said, no, no. You guys, this wasn't working, this thing we did over here. Our little echo chamber is not working. We need to, there's something about this guy we need to press into. And this is the thing about this approach is it isn't a one-shot thing. I tell God something, I tell people something, and then it's all fixed. It's really like this process we work and we work and we work because I want to get to the bottom. We, we need to get to the bottom of our attitude. We need to get to the bottom of what's going on inside us and say, I don't think this is the way it's supposed to be, and I don't have any answers inside me. I'm going to pursue him until his answers break into my life, until things change. So... I want to ask you a question. There's a lot more I could say about this. Anybody have a question you want to pose about this, about the attitude part or about the approach part, before I close? I'm sure I've exhausted every question, but just in case. Awkward silence. So you get, the, you get the idea that questioning Jesus then, let's just pull it to a close. Questioning Jesus is the way to get real. And, it, and, and he wants you to question him. He wants you to bring your questions about him to him and to other people. And to wrestle with them openly, but with a willingness to take the truth wherever it leads you. If it leads you like it would have led those religious leaders 
to surrender a lot of the way that they were doing things, which would have been personally costly to them in, on, on many levels, would you be willing to do that? Because you won't be able to get to the bottom of things, you won't resolve things unless you're willing to be willing to, to do whatever God says when it's all said and done. And if you are, there is cool things ahead for you. If not, the Lord's just going to say, nothing. Just going to be that silence. And it's going to be an invitation for you to go deeper. So, we're going to take communion. And communion is this thing where there's a mystery to it. Oh, let me get my, sorry. There's a mystery to this. But when we encounter God and the bread and the wine, we're encountering Jesus and we're encountering the story of the good news about why Jesus went to the cross for us. And we're in this place, like this is the, the thing about questioning God is, we're in this tension, this place of tension of saying, Something's wrong. Something's wrong, and, and, and it shouldn't be this way. And I want to know what you think about it, even if it means I'm part of the problem. Because it almost always means we're part of the problem. And when we come to the table, Jesus is saying, come to the table. But you have to acknowledge your need before you come to the table. This isn't a snack. This is where we find life. We find life in Jesus. And so the church traditionally, when, when all over the world for 2,000 years, when we've celebrated communion, the church almost always has a time where they invite the people who are coming to the table to a moment of moral reflection to acknowledge why am I coming to this table? Because nobody comes to the table who doesn't need what the table provides, which is forgiveness and life and hope. And that sometimes you come to the table and it's not so much the sin you've committed, it's people have sinned against you and you're reacting horribly, equally as bad to their sins against you. And so sometimes you're coming with this burden of, I need to let go of this, doesn't mean you have to trust them, or it doesn't mean you're saying that what they did was right, but you can't keep judging them because you're coming to a place where you're asking God not to judge you. And you can't hold those two things together. They ruin you. They ruin community. They ruin everything. Because that's pride. That's, that's competing with God. And you're coming to God and saying, God, change my heart. Free me. Make me the best version of myself. Make me like Jesus. I'm coming to Jesus. I'm taking the life of Jesus into me because I want to be more like Jesus. And then none of us know how much there are parts of us that still don't want to be like Jesus. That's what the process of following Jesus is. It's a process of what we call sanctification, where we become more and more like Jesus. But this is where we do it. This is one of the, the key places we do it. So I want, to, I want you to confess with me. There's a little prayer. 
And then after that prayer, I'm going to pronounce forgiveness. And then we're going to take the Lord's body and blood. We're going to ask him to pour salvation into our hearts in a fresh way. That we're children of God already. Our sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. But we're coming to acknowledge where in recent memory we've fallen short of the life that he lived and he is inviting us into. He was going this way and we just kind of went our own way. And now we're coming back and saying, I want to walk with you again, Jesus. Come and change me. So why don't you stand with me? And I'm going to repeat a phrase. This is just a, a prayer confession. You repeat it with me. Our Father in heaven, we've sinned against you and against our neighbor in our thoughts, in our words, and our deeds. Through ignorance and through weakness, and through our own deliberate fault, we have wounded your love and marred your image in us. We're sorry and ashamed and repent of all of our sins. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, who died for us, forgive us all that is past and lead us out from darkness to walk as children of light. Amen. Now, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who in His great mercy has promised forgiveness of sins to all those with heartfelt repentance and true faith turned to Jesus, I just say in His name, have mercy on you. May He pardon and deliver you from all your sins, confirm and strengthen you with all goodness, and bring you to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So the night He was betrayed, He took bread. And he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And the night he was betrayed, he took the cup. And he gave it. And he said, this is my body, my, my blood that was shed for you, the forgiveness of your sins. So, Lord, uh, we thank you that you make these elements life-giving to us, that they represent Jesus, your son, that, Father, you gave him for us. And he gave himself in our place to die on the cross for all of our crimes, the crimes of all humanity. We thank you for the power of your life that's revealed and released when we trust Jesus, when we surrender to Jesus. We've confessed our sins now. We pray that your life would pour into us. And Lord, it would pour into us and then pour out of us to this world. Shape us to be more like Jesus for the sake of the world and for your honor and glory. So whoever's going to help with the communion, if you could come grab your